The Guardian. Hello, this is Guardian Daily and I'm Michael White. Uh, People of West Cumbria have today continued paying tributes to 12 people, ordinary people going about their daily lives and suddenly killed this week by Derek Bird. David Cameron and his Home Secretary Theresa May have been in Whitehoven today visiting relatives. People here in West Cumbria have suffered the most appalling tragedy and it will have a huge impact on the community and I wanted to come here to show that the government wants to listen and wants to show how much it cares about what has, what has happened here. People who in some have met some of them are having to come to terms with just the most appalling random acts that they'll find very difficult to, to understand and in some cases there won't be a proper explanation. But I think it is important to thank the emergency services and the police for all that they've done and to recognise that as people's, people's sadness and mourning will give way to a sense of numbness, then there'll be lots of questions. We'll discuss how politicians can best react to incidents such as these. Uh, Detectives are working on several theories, one that what began as a series of targeted killings by Bird turned into a rampage of random shootings as he drove through the uh, Cumbrian countryside. As details of the lone gunman's life began to emerge and the events of Wednesday became clearer, we'll be discussing the impact of the killings and how communities faced with such traumatic events can recover. I'm joined here in the studio by our Home Affairs editor, Alan Travis, and Guardian columnist Martin Kettle. And on the line from Cumbria, our reporter Paul Lewis. Hello to you all. Paul, are you there? I am here. Good. You set out to recreate Derek Bird's route in your report in today's Guardian, up through the back lanes. What did you learn from it? Well, I think, um, I mean, the first thing that struck me really was... Um, you know, the, the answer to the question that so many people have been asking, which is how he managed to evade police for for so long. I mean, part of the, the, the answer to that question is, of course, that Cumbria is a small force and it doesn't have the number or density of, of um, armed response units that a bigger force would have. But the other answer, and, and the thing you really find out by, by retracing his journey, is that he took back routes and these are small, tiny country lanes and tracks beside meadows that only really a taxi driver who has spent you know, more than two decades uh, driving the area would know as well as... So as he well took evasive action, in effect. He knew they'd well, be coming I mean, after him. It, it may have been that. I mean, we, we don't quite know yet whether they, the police were as, uh, in such close pursuit uh, for him to try to evade them. But, you know, I think um, it would, it's no coincidence, really, that he often deviated from what would have been the shortest route to a destination if indeed he had a destination because the other thing that you the other impression that you get driving along that route is that really it was a road to nowhere i mean he just eventually drove deeper and deeper into the countryside um smaller and smaller routes until he was you know really in the lake district in some quite mountainous areas and then reached the dead end which was uh, in boot we we read in some of the papers today that the local bloggers uh, some of them have been quite angry saying why didn't the police react faster. Well, as you say, it's a small force in a rural area, not uh, equipped for this sort of thing. Uh, uh, but, uh, but equally, you're, you're saying uh, that uh, other people locally understand 
uh, how he would have been easily well placed to avoid it. Is that what you're the implication? Of what you're I, I think they do, and I mean, you know, the more you talk to locals, uh, the more time that passes, the more kind of concern trickles out about you know why weren't police there quick enough? But I think that's actually um, relatively small scale. I mean, the one thing I would say, and I've not read it anywhere yet, is um, one question that we might want to ask is uh, to what extent was the the, the civil nuclear police deployment um the appropriate one so this is from sellafield this is from sellafield that's right a big local employer where bird used to work before he lost his job for thieving exactly yeah and they have their own kind of on stand um standby uh force of police officers and they are armed and i spoke to someone who trains those officers and his view was that these police um you know while good at their job at defending a, a nuclear installation and being on standby for what could be you know a terrorist attack are not really the, the types of officers you would deploy along country lanes you know to pot- potentially take out an armed target so um you know i but the, all of this said um you know we have to accept that there are remote parts of the country that are not always going to be accessible and unless you have every police officer armed which um, I think most of the people around here wouldn't want that uh, then you will have occasions like this when people are on the loose and it takes some time before uh, police catch up with them. Yeah that seems fair enough. Alan Travis, Derek Bird had a shotgun and a .22 caliber rifle with telescopic sights. He held these legally we're told. Uh, what exactly did he have to do to acquire and retain the licenses? Well, it's often said that we have the toughest gun laws in the world, and it's certainly true in getting hold of an illegal weapon. You can face up to a five-year mandatory sentence now for carrying an illegal weapon. But actually, to get a, a shotgun, it's it's incredibly easy in this country, relatively speaking. We have more than 1.3 million shotguns are owned in this country legally. Would it be harder for you as a city dweller to get one? Well, you have to give a plausible reason, not only a plausible reason to get hold of a shotgun. The police uh, have very little or no discretion to turn down your request for a shotgun license. It's a bit harder to get a firearms license to cover a, a rifle or a pistol. There you do actually have to demonstrate and persuade a police officer that you have a legitimate need for uh, to own such a weapon. But we imagine that all sorts of checks are done. We've been told this week that all sorts of checks, background checks on people's are done before a, a, a license is issued. But uh, looking at the Home Office guidance to police forces yesterday a 214 page document it makes absolutely clear there that uh, police officers are advised not as a matter of routine to uh, check with the, the, the gp the uh, the person who's applying for the not to check not to GP. check as a matter of routine this no. may be relevant in this case mightn't it well it looks as though uh, there was a case last year christopher foster a shropshire millionaire who uh, also went a bit berserk, and he shot his wife, and he shot his daughter, then he set fire to the family mansion near Oswestry, and then he shot himself. And as a result of that inquest into that into that incident, the coroner recommended that GPs should start logging on their medical records when somebody was a gun owner. And it's now been 10 months of negotiations between the police and the BMA over that, and they haven't agreed to do that. GPs don't say that it's not their role to monitor the mental health of people who own guns in this country. So there, I think there'll be a big debate about uh, the role of the mental health authorities in, in gun licensing. But this discretion that the police have is uh, very limited on, 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 on shotguns. And I think there is a distinct difference between, as you say, uh, what goes on in cities and in our urban areas, where there's almost an anti-gun culture uh, is heavily ingrained, whilst in rural areas, and particularly rural areas like Cumbria, where shooting, well. <laughs> shooting and Shropshire yeah, is uh, you know, regarded as a normal part of life. The reasons cited by... Uh, 
Derek Bird for owning his uh, firearms license he got three years ago was vermin control and recreational target shooting, and uh, which seemed pretty wide kind of things. And he was just uh, tin cans, isn't it? Well, allegedly a member of a gun club, but we can't haven't yet been able to find any trace of any actual registered gun club that he was a member of. Interestingly, after the Dunblane massacre, Lord Cullen, who conducted the inquiry into that, one of his recommendations was that people who uh, owned firearms. Uh, shouldn't be allowed to keep either the weapons or their ammunition together at home. And if that had ever been acted upon, then he would have had to have gone to the gun club, spoken to somebody else to get the quantity of ammunition that he had. I'd be interested to see if that one starts to run a bit in policy circles. Okay. Martin Kettle, uh, I suppose country people listening to this would say it's all very well for you townies throwing stones at us, but most of the shooting goes on in cities uh, with uh, illegally held weapons. But you've lived in the United States uh, as well, where the gun culture is so permissive that it you know, takes your breath away. Uh, what sense, uh, uh, what lessons do we uh, infer from that? Well, I think we're well off compared with the United States, if that's the question. That Killed 20,000 people one way or another, don't well, they? That's Suicide right. and, and murder. They, um, they, they, they have far more guns. They have far more deaths from guns. The two things are, I think, uh, connected. Um, and the same is true of, uh, in countries in Europe which uh, have looser gun control than we do, that they have more deaths from gunshots than uh, than we do too. Just to get it in perspective, I think I'm right, and sure Alan will correct me if I'm wrong, that there are only seven people killed by shotguns in 2008-2009, according to a Home Office research study I was looking at this week. Derek Bird killed 12 in one after, in one morning and afternoon so you know that does show what an, uh, a very exceptional event uh, this was by comparison with the uh, very low rate of uh, fatal injury that, so uh, from, we, from, gu- from shotguns should we not necessarily be concerned that this dreadful thing has happened it happens things happen that we shouldn't to use david cameron theresa may's phrase uh, respond in a knee-jerk sense to uh, calls for uh, tighter controls one mp said perhaps everyone should be prohibited from holding any kind of weapon well, that would go down like a lead balloon in those kind of rural areas that you're talking about. And, I mean, that's a, uh, I think uh, that is an urban uh, reaction. And, uh, you know, I don't think that that's very likely to happen. Of course, everybody's against knee-jerk reactions, aren't they? I mean, you know, they, they, it's, a, it's a self-fulfilling point that David Cameron made. But the reality is surely that we are going to have a pretty detailed inquiry of some kind, whether it's a full... A tribunal of inquiry like the one Alan mentioned, Lord Cullen's uh, into the Dunblane massacre uh, is, is another matter. And at the end of that, there will or there may or may not be proposals for uh, changing the procedure, changing the law. And those things are going to have to be thought about. I mean, I think the idea of just ruling those out right at the outset, simply because one should not uh, allow uh, these dramatic cases to uh, shape our laws uh, is, you know, both wrong and uh, foolish. Alan Travis, Alan Johnson, former Home Secretary, first outing as Shadow Home Secretary, Theresa May, her first time, a bit like Jackie Smith, who had a terrible first day in the Commons after those uh, attempted bombings in London and Glasgow a couple of years ago, said, Alan Johnson said, well, maybe there should be follow-up checks. Uh, Derek Bird has held a licence for 20 years, we're told. What kind of follow-up checks, either by the police or you mentioned the GP earlier, might have uh, prevented this? It seems hard to see that somebody who erupts in this unpredicted and unpredictable way, that they'd be picked up by the system. Well, I think that he was talking in the mental health context there, I think, uh, Alan Johnson, but I think 
It's one of those cases where, on paper, the the rules look incredibly tough and the procedures are very complicated. But uh, in terms of actual enforcement, uh, things are perhaps not as, as as tight as they once were. In about 1995, they decided to extend the lifetime of a gun license from three years to five years on the basis there weren't enough firearms licensing officers around to actually go and do the work. And uh, as a result of that, uh, quite a few forces moved over to postal renewals of uh, the gun licenses, which meant you could actually have gone for 10 years and have a gun license or a firearms license without actually being visited by anybody, having direct, any contact, direct contact with the licensing authority. So I think, I think possibly follow-up checks in those terms may not be such a, a terrible idea. Uh, and it's this kind of detail, I think, where, where Alan Johnson was yeah. kind of thinking about. Yeah. OK. Paul Lewis, are you still there, Paul? I'm still here, Good yeah. man. Cumbria, small police force, as uh, everyone understands. Uh, you said they brought in the Sellafield force. Uh, we, we gathered they got a lot of help from Lancashire, much bigger force next door, lent it the uh, helicopter and other things. What sort of uh, uh, reaction have people felt about uh, how well they did it between them? Because I noticed Theresa May told an MP that when Charles Clark was trying to push through mergers between uh, smaller forces in Britain, Lancashire and Cumbria, unusually, because most of them resisted it, unusually they were in favour of a sort of voluntary merger, I think. And uh, Alan Travis is shaking his head, I've got that wrong. But anyway, uh, the basic answer, what do people feel about cooperation and uh, how they managed in on an appalling day? Well, I think, I think the, the kind of instant reaction was... Um, I mean, almost one that you could define as solidarity. I mean, everyone was pulling together. I mean, this is not, um, this is not, um, you know, like a, a large urban conurbation in which you would have police officers travelling in from the suburbs. Police officers here in Cumbria, and particularly in West Cumbria, are part of the community that they police. Um, many of the officers who, um, who who were deployed were at the time off duty. They were at the funeral of one of the young girls who died in, in, in the coach crash last week. Um, and, and so that just gives you an impression of how much they know the community and how much the community knows them. Many of them knew the victims. Many of the police officers indeed even knew Derek Bird. Um, and I think probably for that reason, because community and police are kind of interwoven, the sense of complaint or, or the propensity of people to, um, to turn against their force and say, why didn't you do something quicker is diminished. Yeah, this, is, uh, this is community policing of the kind they talk about in big cities but find hard to do where people... Well, that's exactly it, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, but all, all, all of that said, people in these kinds of situations do look to blame somebody or something. And, and I think that's kind of a natural reaction. I mean, uh, the first few days, the first few hours certainly, but also kind of y- yesterday too, people were still digesting. I mean, there were uh, people I encountered who still hadn't been out of their house uh, this morning uh, was the first time they came out. They were too scared to venture out. And now that they're coming out, now that they're talking to each other, people are looking for explanations. And like I said, to a certain degree, they're looking to somebody to blame. Now, I don't think it's quite justifiable to blame the police force in this event, but certainly, you know, when something as serious as this happens and when so many people die, you know, you do need to inquire into whether or not things could have been done better. I mean, one thing to add on, on the thing that you suggested about police force liaison. I mean, there are very few forces, if any, that want to kind of voluntarily um, merge. But there was, as I understand it, um, no liaison with any police forces north of the border, which may in fact have been kind of closer to the scenes of the crime. And that's because of the kind of the the structure of police forces we have here in in the UK, where England and Wales are separated from Scotland. Um, Now, would that have made a difference? I don't know. But it's certainly a question to put out there. 
Yep. Okay, Martin Kettle, you've written books about the police. Uh, what's your take on uh, the idea that larger forces, uh, merged forces, are more efficient and would have handled this better? Well, I think in the particular case of West Cumbria, it's hard to imagine real, realistically how much else could have been uh, very different. I mean, this is a pretty isolated part of England, one of the most isolated, and it's very self-contained, as Paul's just been uh, explaining. And I, my mind was going back to the fact to that policeman who died in the floods in Cockermouth, uh, Workington, uh, a few months ago. You know, he was very much that They've kind of local, rough, local, but that the neighbourhoods had it very badly. Uh, um, you know, I have relatives up there, and I know uh, uh, quite a bit about uh, that area. And you know, it's uh, it, it, it's very much uh, its own its own area. So I I suspect that uh, all the uh, changes that you would make to the the planning of um, an organisation of police forces wouldn't, in fact, mean there'd be very much there. I mean, after all, the Lake District is an area very well provided for with uh, emergency helicopters, for instance, uh, because of the climbers and those kind of accidents that they go out to uh, in the fells. So, you know, and everybody's pretty geared up to uh, that kind of uh, those kind of A and E injuries in yeah. those hospitals around there. So I mean, you know, I'm sure individual things might have made a bit of a difference, but the reality is, I think that uh, these are completely, uh, well, not completely, but very difficult to spot uh, events uh, which yeah, they're, people they're, aren't expecting. Not, not just uh, geared up to mass murder, Alan. I think I think it's a difference where, for example, the Soham murders investigation, which did trigger the original debate about mergers, whether homicide police was too small a force to cope with a major investigation. They failed to alert uh, I think it's a, wait, wait, there's two man. different things here. Yes, I mean, it's kind of, this is a catastrophic incident, uh, almost a, a civil emergency in, in, a, in, a, in a small rural area. And the fact that the guy shot himself at the end of it means there is not going to be any huge police investigation into this incident in the sense of having to uh, mount a case uh, and bring someone to court. So in terms of whether the resources of the Cumbria police would have been able to launch a murder inquiry on this scale uh, would certainly start raging questions about whether they were a force which was big enough to cope with that inquiry. But that's not going to happen. The kind of collaborative arrangement they were talking about four years ago with Lancashire was to be able to um, share helicopters, armed response units, what they call protective services that broke down on surely on negotiations over cash they Cumbria weren't willing to pay the kind of bill that uh, Lancashire were demanding for the, the, the right to be able to call upon their their helicopters their armed response teams when and if they needed them um, I think that a small force in those terms in Cumbria as you've been talking about close-knit communities cohesive community policing obviously does work to a large extent so I don't think Cumbria is going to be uh, a situation which which proves the debate on mergers one way or the other it's not like Humberside. It's not clearly culpable. I wonder, the politics of gun control, my sense in the Commons yesterday was that Labour MPs was reflex action, inclined to call for tighter controls, and Tory MPs were saying, let's not stop uh, law-abiding citizens going about their simple pleasures of uh, uh, sporting and hunting events. And, of course, Kate Hervey on the Labour side was instinctively with the Tories. Is that roughly how you read it in terms of the reaction to this uh, in political terms and like? the outcomes? Well, it was striking the two extremes. We had a new Labour MP calling, as you say, remarkably for banning of all weapons in private hands on the one hand, and you had John Whittingdale and Kate Hoey uh, openly saying they represent the shooters and they hope this won't be an opportunity to uh, uh, make incursions into the gun laws. But I think there will be quite a, uh, an interesting and grown-up debate, I hope there, there will be, uh, which gets beyond this uh, kind of polarised American-style debate of, uh, on the one hand, you have those 
arguing it's it's the person who kills it's not the gun and on the other hand uh, the gun is 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 the weapon of death um and i think that uh, everyone will be uh, content to wait for the inquiry to come It'd be interesting to see when uh, the debate inside cumbria itself and whitehaven whether once they've got beyond the immediate impact what what kind of demands they they start making it's quite interesting, isn't it, that this uh, event has taken place uh, right at the beginning of a parliament. Uh, Dunblane took place towards the end of a parliament and, and there was a bit of a, a bidding war between the parties as to how toughly to react to, uh, to Dunblane with, with, with legislation. Uh, and that was because in, electro- election, in electoral terms, uh, you know, you want to be seen to be tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, well, I think was the, the, uh, the phrase. were very highly articulate demands yes, they were. for a ban on handguns. I think yeah, it was, and it involved children, so, you know, it was a much more of, uh, emotionally charged well, Some high-profile politicians to stay with us there, Paul, we haven't forgotten you. Um, uh, that George Robertson was a local MP who knew that man, Thomas Hamilton. He'd caused trouble to him and to, uh, actually, strictly the local MP, was Michael Forsyth, uh, Secretary of State in Scotland in the past, uh, so uh, much more at stake involving yeah, I think I, th- I think the the sur- I think you know the the surrounding political context of this event uh, is, is is not as pressured uh, uh, as it would have been uh, if it was at a later stage in the in the cycle. That's all the point I'm making. Paul, are we any clearer as to what triggered this? As to uh, how uh, uh, Derek Bird or why he did what he did when he did it? Uh, have we got an update on that? Well, I think I mean as it stands at the moment and and. You know, even though we're, what, on the third day now, um, things are changing all the time uh, in terms of information that's coming through. But as it stands at the moment, I mean, I think the, the, the closest bet to accuracy that we have is that, that he had uh, money problems, that there was a dispute with his family, uh, particularly his brothers, over his, his mother's will. Um, he had and the tax man initial, money, that sort of thing. That's right, yeah. And that his, his initial killings were targeted, um, certainly his brother, um, and then certainly the, the family solicitor as well. I mean, you know, you had to go direct to the house to get there. I mean, it is down lots of winding lanes. And then, you know, beyond that, did he target the individual ta- taxi drivers because he had an argument with them the night before? Well, that's a possibility. But beyond that, the last 10 killings um, do appear to have been completely random. Now, police may say otherwise in the next few hours, but that's how it stands at the moment. And one thing I've heard, it's not been confirmed yet, but I've heard it from, from, I think, good sources, is that he may have, have, have killed those last 10 in as short a period as just an hour. Now, that would be kind of one killing every seven or eight minutes. Now, if you want to kind of understand how hard it would have been for police to kind of intercept him, then I think that says it all, really. I mean, it, this was not as initially seemed something that lasted perhaps three to four hours, um, although his body was discovered and the, the call went out that he had taken his own life at around 1.40 p.m., I think it may have been uh, one or two hours before that that he did actually kill himself. So, you know, actually, the, the, the picture is changing all of the time. And I think the thing to say, which is quite interesting for me to listen to you here, I mean, we've been obviously in a, in a, in a bubble here in around Whitehaven and, and the surrounding villages. I mean, some of them you wouldn't even call villages. They're kind of hamlets. They're just collections of houses. And... You know, for the people here, they are um, as divorced from this kind of national debate as you can imagine. Uh, uh, I've really been extraordinarily touched by um, the way in which the community is supporting itself. And, you know, even supporting outsiders 
like us reporters. We we often they don't haven't got cross with you yet. They haven't got fed up with. Well, they have, and, and you know, media. I've been at lots of these types of crime scenes before, um, and you know, often you get people closing closing up and clamming up and telling you that they don't want to talk to you. But I think in this occasion, it's been quite quite the opposite. You know, um, people have helped me out. I've, I've turned up. I came, jumped on the train the moment um, we heard about it from Birmingham, where I was at at the time, didn't have a laptop. And I've had local people lending me their computers. Um, oh, you can't say fairer refu- than that, land- can you? Landlords yeah. refusing to take money for, for, for coffee and lunch. And people just, it, there's a general kind of culture in the air that people need to help each other out. And all over um, the, the, the surrounding kind of 10, 15 mile radius, people are just um, kind of on an impromptu basis, uh, putting tables outside their houses, making people cups of tea and offering to kind of talk about it. And, and um, you know, I think that's really quite impressive. And I actually don't know if it would happen uh, in all other parts of the country. I mean, maybe that is something unique to a place like Cumbria, particularly West Cumbria, yeah. um, where people know everyone and they are communities in the kind of true sense. Uh, well, people sometimes like to talk in moments of grief and are happy to talk to strangers. I, I seem to remember having done these things in the past. Alan Travis, you're not in Cumbria, but you've seen a lot of these events, monitored them over the years. Um, coverage, tone of the coverage in this uh, uh, dreadful event, has the media behaved itself? Has it got it right or what are we doing wrong? Well, I think uh, Paul's right in reflecting that what appears to be uh, uh, almost uh, uh, the fact that the media have turned up in Cumbria is, is a help part of the immediate grieving process. Uh, the internet age has uh, meant that a lot more speculation has entered the mainstream than perhaps used to when I first covered uh, Hungerford in the uh, late 80s or Dunblane in 96. And so you'll see stories uh, about theories uh, leading national newspapers now and national news websites uh, are based upon uh, unconfirmed theories, shall we say. Just, I mean, gossip, really. Uh, yes, in those terms, and the reporters will, uh, that the smallest tidbit will be immediately live blogged and uh, will be put up. And there'll be that will also uh, have a reaction in the community itself. And we had quite a spirited debate one day this week at The Guardian over uh, whether we should have comments on our uh, live blog because we were getting uh, information from people in the area in Cumbria who were posting comments about... And what about, were the parameters of that argument on. at The Guardian? I wasn't there. Well, um, we were getting tidbits about uh, information which hadn't yet been released by the police about particular possible victims and whether that was accurate or not and what we should do uh, with with that information and whether that was fair to the families of those victims uh, or, or or reports of further shootings and so on and other, and other uh, gossip and theories about what was going on and uh, about Bird himself. And it was, it's much more raw, much more unconfirmed kind of journalism, which, of course, is much more immediate. And we've done it before, particularly with uh, events uh, abroad. But uh, it seemed to have a much stronger reader, reader reaction here. People were telling us, uh, other readers of the website were saying, please switch the comments off. We just don't, it is just too intrusive. Yeah. Martin Kettle. Uh, there have been a rush of psychologists and psychiatrists writing in all the newspapers about the profile of the sort of man Derek Bird turned out to be, though people didn't know. Are there any sensible generalizations we can draw about angry middle-aged men, socially isolated, uh, frustrated lives, or is it all a bit too glib and um, pat? I think it's difficult to generalize from events like this. I mean, if you... 
start saying that you know he had money problems, and a lot of people in West Cumbria do have money problems. It's a very poor part of, of of Britain. It's the only part of Britain where people are anxious to have nuclear power stations in their area. Uh, everybody else wants wants them as far away as they possibly can be, but that's because there aren't jobs. And um, you know, but but there are thousands of people in West Cumbria, none of whom would ever go on a rampage, thank goodness. And uh, therefore, you know, I mean, to, to say that money that uh, money worries triggered this is maybe true, but it doesn't explain the particular uh, case. And you know, you can look. I mean, I was thinking just about, you know, I mean, even down here in the south, you hear you hear a lot about. Um, regular taxi drivers being fed up with the fact that as unemployment has begun to increase there are a lot of people uh, out there who aren't uh, registered taxi drivers working mm. in that trade and undercutting them and, and Derek Bird was you know, attacked a, by a young man wasn't yeah, he so you know there's a lot of you know there's a lot of things that are of 2010 and the particular kind of society that we are uh, in the kind of economic circumstances uh, that we are but um you know, I mean, I, I, I still don't think that they they lead us very far. I think what you need, what we, what we need, is a is is a is a cooler, calmer uh, reflection on the particular case, and then you know some kind of um, professional judgment about what lessons can effectively be learned and what can't. And it, I mean, I was interested in your previous uh, discussion about you know the, the the sociability, the the strong community in in West Cumbria. I remember when Gordon Brown went to Cockermouth during the just after the floods. You know, he was very he found that too. I mean, that that community is very strong, and of course, then that makes one think you know david cameron big society um this is actually the kind of britain uh, that david cameron and it's not broken, is, is, it? is actually um very very interested yeah. in supportive and as you say it's not broken no. it, it it's holding up it's dealing with uh, an incredible challenge uh, which no community should have to face paul lewis you're sitting there by the roadside in your car in cumbria you deserve the last word well i mean uh, i it really it's just to kind of echo what what Martin just said then and I think what I mean really it's only when you're at a place like this that you kind of really feel how a community responds and I don't you know it's often a cliche and it's it's often a given that you know a community has pulled together and that they're looking after each other um, and it can have an almost kind of for, you know tragedy like this can have an almost fortifying impact on a local community um, but what I would say being here and having talked to people is that in this case it's it's real um, and it and it is quite impressive and it is quite touching and um, uh, you know for for a Londoner who lives in in, in metropolis. I was beginning to guess East that you London. were a city boy, Paul. Well, you know I've not always lived in in the city and of course I've I've done lots of work out you know in the country here and elsewhere. But um, you know I, it's the thing that's that's kind of been the most unexpected for me. Um, you know the people here are really quite decent. Something terrible has happened in their uh, community and they're dealing with it really well. Thank you. That's a positive note on which to end. It's the end of this podcast. My thanks to Paul Lewis, Alan Travis and Martin Kettle. This is Michael White. I hope you join us again. 